Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, my guest is Zach Doffman, CEO of a company called Digital Barriers. Zach is going to help us discuss the resolution for public forum in November and December of 2019. That resolution reads, Resolve, the benefits of the United States federal government's use of offensive cyber operations outweigh the harms. Zach is the founder and CEO of Digital Barriers. He's responsible for the overall management and operations of his company. He founded this business in 2009 in order to capitalize on commercial opportunities within the security, defense, and law enforcement markets. Zach began his career with Anderson Consulting, now called Accenture, before becoming the Group Strategy and Development Director at Deteca, now part of BAE Systems. Uh, he also writes regularly for various publications, uh, including Forbes Magazine. I found Zach because when I was Googling this topic and trying to learn something about it, turns out all of the articles that I found, at least, he had written. And he very <laughs> graciously answered an email saying, hey, would you like to come on the show? Zach, thank you so much for coming on What's the Red? today. No worries, good to be here. Ah, now, uh, Zach, just so our, our listeners know, uh, help us know with where you are and uh, where, where you live and all that. So I'm talking to you now from London, so it is uh, not quite as early here as it is where you are. Um, <laughs> so the, the company I run is based kind of between here and Reston in Virginia, but we sell into about 50 countries around the world. So it's great to be at home with my family, but I spend a lot of time in airports and on airplanes traveling to see various customers around around the world. That is amazing. We've we've uh, I don't think we've had we've had we've done one interview with a, a teenager in England somewhere. My my co-host found a uh, philosophy memes uh, Instagram page uh, owner that he interviewed about philosophy. But I think you are uh, the first professional and uh, certainly the first CEO we've interviewed. So this is very exciting. Uh, well, Zach, tell us a little about your company and how, how ex- what exactly does Digital Barriers do? How did you get involved in, in, in this? Have you always been interested in cybersecurity concerns? Or give us a little bit of your story. So the, the business that you talked about before, Detica, which was sold to BA Systems, that was a pure play cybersecurity business. Um, working into UK, US governments, um, a few other places around the world. In essence, doing... Um, electronic surveillance in a both offensive and defensive cyber world. And that business was sold to BA Systems. So that, that is where my interest, if you like, in, uh, in cybersecurity comes from. The business I run today, Digital Barriers, is, is less of a pure play cyber business, although that, that is obviously a component. We're a, an advanced surveillance business. So, so what we sell is um, video surveillance technologies, artificial intelligence that can sit on various types of edge devices and our kind of remit is to get intelligence from the edge, as we call it, to where it's needed in real time. Um, you know, so, uh, so our customers who in the main are government agencies and uh, law enforcement agencies can get the information that they need. And that means that we, we operate in a very secure environment. Um, we're experts at how you move that kind of information over wireless networks and how you ensure that you can narrow down what, what's out there so that you focus um, only on the important things. So my interest in cyber kind of spreads between various areas I've worked. I, clearly, we work into customers on both sides of the Atlantic and Pacific that focus very heavily on on all of those areas. But it is a um, it is a really interesting time for the space right now. Um, I think you've seen, and I've I've written, you've seen more openness and transparency in offensive cybersecurity. 
um, than we've ever seen before. And I think for kind of everyday people, that gives you a, a much greater insight into what is actually happening every day of the week than, than has been possible in the past. So this really has been happening for years then, is what I'm inferring from that. And we're we, the public, are now kind of getting a little bit more insight into the fact that cyber operations has been part of kind of uh, at a governmental and a military level. Is that is that accurate? It is. And, and I think it's really, I mean, cybersecurity is all about semantics and you have to be very careful. So um, cyber is a bubble. It's been a bubble for some time now. And what that means is that anyone who's doing anything in information security will use information security terms interchangeably with cybersecurity terms. And that has really obfuscated what, what we're talking about now. So cybersecurity really breaks down into probably three areas. Um, most of it has got nothing to do with cybersecurity at all. It's bog standard network hygiene, housekeeping, information security. So keeping people safe. And I include in that, you know, protection against data breaches and the likes, which isn't really cybersecurity. It's just, you know, putting a sensible password on your database and ensuring that your, that your network is protected. So the two areas that cybersecurity really focuses on are offensive and defensive. And what defensive is, is the fact that whether you are a, an industry which is, or a company that is safeguarding intellectual property or a government agency that is safeguarding you know, the national interest, what you need to be doing is monitoring for a offensive breaches of your security setup. That's highly technical and you are dealing with a very sophisticated adversary in the main. So what you need to do is you need to ensure that you have the right um, the right traps, if you like, um, the right indicators and, and monitoring techniques in place within your network, complex network setup to understand whether you where when you are under attack and, and how you deal with that. And organizations like that are under attack. Let's be very clear. Whether you're running a large organization or a government agency, you are being attacked. And you're being attacked every week and you need to ensure that those attacks don't get through. And within the real cybersecurity space, that defensive side is 90% of what takes place. The, the stuff that has in the past been kind of, you know, denied and, um, and is becoming more transparent is the offensive cyber capabilities. And that's where now we're talking about the government realm and that's where governments attack other industries or each other. Um, and what you're seeing there is the kind of the game of chess playing out between the US and its allies and then various threat actors, be they Russia, China, um, uh, or North Korea, or, and increasingly Iran as well, actually. And then what you're seeing there is a kind of an arms race, a cybersecurity arms race, where all of those players are becoming more expert and the tools that are available to them are becoming um, you know, more at hand, more accessible. Um, and therefore, it goes back to the defensive side, then you need to become more sophisticated in defending against those attacks. So the stuff you will have read, the stuff that is making the news is all about um, the US being more open about its use of offensive cybersecurity capabilities as an alternative um, to physical, you know, bombs and bullets and the implications from that. And what we've seen in the last few months, which we had never seen before, is, is, is that level of openness. Wow. Well, that, that's, that, that's an incredibly helpful kind of summary of, w- of where this field is. Uh, and I guess I have two follow-up questions there. Um, the first, you mentioned that really any government agency or any company that's large enough to have a decent pool of data, and I, I know that's increasingly becoming most companies that exist have data of some sort that they're accumulating. Who is doing the attacking? Are these local cyber pirates? Are these organized gangs? Is this anonymous? Are these international bodies? Who does the attacking in terms of both companies and, and governments? 
everyone. And, um, and the techniques are probably the same, and it's the level of sophistication that changes. So you will be familiar with the concept of phishing, which is, you know, you know I, I suspect even your students receive, you know, emails that purport or texts or whatever that purport to come from the Apple store or um, uh, Google Play store and, you know, your account's been locked and you need to click here and, and then it all will be well. And, and obviously not a single one of those has actually come from a, an authorised sender. They're all uh, fraudulent scams. So that is basic phishing. And, and but the, what the attempt is to steal the credentials of a user and then exploit those. Now, beyond that, you get into what's called spear phishing. So that is targeted, directed. Um, so then it would it would be much harder for you on superficially to, to find out or to work out that's a scam. And that might, you know, come from someone that you know or appear to come from someone you know. Or it might be focused on a subject that, that, that is important to you. So you might um, receive an email from a teaching standards body or from the school, and it will tell you that, you know, there's a report that you need to read and it will send an attachment or a link and the link will look like it's in, you know, Google Cloud or Dropbox. You'll click it, you'll put in your password, and then suddenly they've got your credentials and then they will try and work out where they can apply those credentials. And then beyond that, you get into even more sophisticated realms where you will have people that will set up fake accounts. That, um, we, we've seen it recently with research bodies. So you'll set up a fake account that appears to be a research institution. You'll run that, you'll make it look nice and real, and then you'll start to reach out to the community with a view to stealing information and credentials. Now, um, there are basic fraudulent threat actors that are doing all that for profit because what they're trying to do is, is get your credentials and then they could, for example, either try and tap into steal stuff from you or increasingly they might use your platforms to contact people you know because then it becomes even more credible because you're contacting your friends and colleagues and then, and then the, uh, the scam emanates from that. Then what you see in, in the kind of in the, the, the kind of the grown-up cyber world is basically the same techniques but just done better. So what we've seen in the last year is we've seen increasing use of mobile applications that are set up by state-sponsored threat actors, be they from Iran or, or, or China, um, where in essence what they're doing is they are encouraging, you know, they're, they're targeting people that work in certain industries and in certain places. They'll get them to put something on their phones and, and then they're kind of inside the fence. Increasingly, we use our phones on the networks run by our employers. So then again, you, you, you're gaining access in that way. Um, the, the challenge for all of us, um, anyone particularly works in an, in an industry that kind of sits within the national interest or has access to information that's in the national interest, is the level of sophistication has got way beyond the stuff that you, you know, you'd spot immediately. And you know, we all kind of quite patronising in terms of our views of people that might fall for these basic Apple or Google scams. What we're seeing now is a level of sophistication that's quite hard to tell. And, and that, that has become the danger. And what that's opened up is a is a much more widespread view as to the implications of the amount of information that is immediately accessible when you can you can grab the credentials um, of a victim who sits within a particularly strategic place. When you get into the the kind of the top table, like the really grown up world, then obviously all of the defences sit around that. So everything's fire gapped. You can't you can't I can't put an app on the phone of someone who works as an intel agency and expect to get access to intel systems doesn't work that way um, and that's when again stuff I've written about in the past is and what's not that well understood is most cybersecurity, really nation-state cybersecurity defensive campaigns have a physical dimension and what that might mean is that you are compromising an individual so you you might use social media to compromise an individual who has access to certain places or locations or physically you may actually go into a location in a 
foreign country with a you know thumb drive or or whatever else, and, and you might actually try to access information or pull information into systems that way. So then we're in the proper grown-up territory um, at that point. Sitting across all of this is this concept of social engineering, which I guess you'll be familiar with, and I've seen your students as well. And social engineering is the kind of psychological manipulation en masse of victims such that you can anticipate how they will respond to things and try and monitor and um, modify their behaviour. You're more likely to respond to something on your phone from a friend than from an organisation you've never heard of. You're more likely to respond to a WhatsApp or an SMS message than you are an email. You are more likely to download an entertainment app than you are something for business purposes, whatever else. So what, what we've seen with social engineering is the, the entity for attackers to think harder about how they can get the response they need from, from a specific victim or from a, a range of victims. And again, it becomes much harder for you as an individual to spot it when it comes in and do something about it instinctively. Um, we want to click. The, fi- the final point on all that, and I think this is this is the real issue, whether you're government or commercial right now, um, somewhere between 99 and 100% of successful attacks have a human dimension. And what that means is that gone are the days really where you know, something will just be done in an automated fashion. No one knows it's there. It kind of goes in and the system accepts it and the attack takes place. Somebody somewhere has clicked or installed or downloaded. And that really puts the onus back on the individual, on training, on awareness, um, because the systems, the defensive mechanisms have now been put in place that can protect against the stuff coming in. What you can't protect against is the inexperienced, lack of training, or sometimes it has to be said the stupidity of an individual for you know just wanting to, to, to click the link or, or, or download the application. And that's a really hard problem to solve because you can put all, you know, Google and Apple and others can put all the defense mechanisms in place that you like, but ultimately if a user is going to click a link, they're going to click a link. Wow. So no matter, so it really, then this is not kind of my mental picture of this is probably more shaped by TV shows than anything else. But it's of uh, people sitting in a government building somewhere on computers, and they are somehow hacking into another system. But that's not what you're describing. You're describing I mean, something that's much more about, can I get a foreign government's intelligence officer to somehow download this app that well, as soon as he downloads it, we get access to his data and his information? Is that is that really the essence of this? Or, or is this also involved with kind of trying to collapse any kind of internet-connected system in, in foreign countries or something of that nature as well? Um, so, yeah, two, two different questions. The, we deal with the first one first. Um, I mean, you, you know, the, the kind of brute force attack where you're kind of, you know, just throwing every possible combination of letters and numbers at a, at a, at a login site and eventually you'll get a password. And, you know, we see lots of stuff written about how terrible passwords are. And, you know, we've all got, you know, names of soccer players or, you know, mummy123 or whatever we do. Um, fine. In the, in the sophisticated side of the world, you know, we're, we're level up from that. Um, there is, you know, significant effort put into the theft of credentials and to access systems. So, yeah, you will have people sat in basements that will be targeting systems, that will be writing code on rest of it. But they've got to get those code into the systems that are being targeted. And usually that that involves some kind of credentialized access into those systems. Those credentials are stolen or compromised. They are stolen by a cyber campaign or they're physically stolen. And, and that, that's how you do that. Um, and sorry, I've now completely forgotten your second question. Oh, well, so at least the 
my, my understanding is that part of this also involves the ability to target another country's uh, yeah. internet connected systems. Is that also part of the cybersecurity, cyber operations world? Yeah, so we absolutely. Um, the internet in of itself, so, you, so the internet means nothing. What, what is important are critical infrastructure components that are connected that you can access remotely. Um, and the command and control structures that exist. So famously, a few months ago, US Cyber Command attacked Iran's command and control system. So its ability, if you are, you know, sitting in, you know, Central HQ to actually, you know, engage in some kind of aggressive action against the US, its proxies or its allies. So if you if you bring down the command and control structure, then you remove the ability of the enemy to act. We've seen that. Um, but you know, at the same point, we've seen attacks on power grill, power grids. We've seen attacks on telecoms networks where because we live in this connected world um you can access all of these various systems without sitting in in those hqs again it doesn't get around the fact that you need the ability to get into those systems and let's be dead clear you know whether they're military governmental or commercial these are large organizations that tend to have some protective mechanisms in place this is not hacking into the you know the network drive you've got at home right there, there are there are systems in place to stop this but again, if you've got the ability or if, you've, if you have stolen credentials, you in essence are inside the fence with the ability to get into those systems, once you're in, you're in. What's really interesting um, that we've seen um, recently is increasing awareness of attacking very secure systems through insecure local endpoints. So again, because of the level of connectivity that you were talking about, where I live in a world where my, you know, clearly my printer's connected, my VoIP phone's connected, but my fridge and my TV are probably connected as well. And everything I buy probably has the button that I press and, uh, and I log into my, my home broadband. At that point, if I can gain that, if, if, if those systems are looking to the outside world from within my secure home environment or office environment, then that gives me the ability as an attacker to attack a device that's probably you've never updated the firmware of, probably has the same password and admin access that it ships with. And then once again, once I'm through that, I'm inside the wire. So on every level, though, where you look at this right now, the increasing level of connectivity that we're seeing provides an increasing level of vulnerability. And we're dealing with a very sophisticated set of threat actors on both the, the basic, you know, criminal and, and the governmental side. That is that is really fascinating. On the same time, it's 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 rather terrifying to think that. I mean, everything we go about, whether we talk, whether we're thinking of banking, whether hospitals, or I, I'm terrified about thinking about if, if if some foreign agent could get access to our traffic light system, because so many of those are now really automated and they're paired with some sort of weight sensor and uh, system and so on. But if you can change that and just li- literally, you can have mass chaos very, very quickly. It seems to me, it seems like it lends itself to a worst case scenario uh, kind of idea. I want to back up just a moment. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that uh, there is a, there's a lot of semantics in this space. Um, the resolution that we're dealing with uses the phrase offensive cyber operations. Is there a specific definition for that phrase? Or is there even a really a source that governs the, the terminology inside the cyber community? Yeah, so, I mean, offensive cyber is governmental. It is, it is one government attacking another nation state in the main using cyber as its domain. Um, and that can be to create an outcome, as we've talked about. It can be part of a military campaign or it simply can be to gather intelligence. So this is the, you know, if you think about from a governmental perspective, cybersecurity writ large being a very secure, you know, um, secretive 
endeavour, offensive is is the centre of the onion, if you like. That is that is where the capabilities are um, most heavily um, coveted. You've seen in terms of some of the the stuff that came out with the Snowden leaks. You've seen some of the stuff that's come out as the cyber reports this year around you know China. I think it was stealing US capabilities as part of that whole kind of um, uh, NSA leak side. What you've seen there is, um, you know, I think a, a nice insight into some of what takes place and some of the tools, the weapons, as they decide what they're called, that have had been developed and are being used and the arms race that's taking place between different nation states um, uh, to capitalise on that. There's a lot of talk in around the US at the moment about the elections next year and the potential for cyber offensive against those, particularly with Russia in mind. Again, you're then looking at all different types of outcomes, but ultimately offensive cyber weapons, which are you know, one nation state ultimately attacking, in this case, the democratic system of another. That, that's, that's really helpful. So at least we're dealing with that. Then that, that's, I, I couldn't track down an easily findable definition. So that's really helpful to think about that in terms of this is a government actor act, or a government acting against another government in, in, in yeah. terms of cyber warfare. And in and in cyber, what you find is um, you find these kind of threat threat actors. They are so we're very careful with our semantics. So um, while there clearly are you know government agencies that do stuff themselves, what there are is a lot of proxies, a lot of state sponsored groups. Um, so you'll see in China, in Iran, in Russia, you have this these kind of persistent threat groups where what they are is they are working for an agency, but ultimately they operate as a little startup team, a little independent team that is working at the behest of an agency but doesn't kind of have government credentials and turn up to work inside the fence and go through the security layers. It's kind of off-site. And, uh, and that, those are the real threats that we see right now. Well, t- tell me a little bit more about those threats because I know you've mentioned some of the, the names I had on my list. I, in some preliminary research, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea were the four names that kept coming up. Where are those countries in terms of their cyber warfare offensive capabilities? Should, do, does the United States government need to be concerned about those? I mean, does, are, are they real threats, I suppose, is what I'm really asking. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, who, who was one of the senior cyber command guys, I think, described the threat from some of those actors as, as what's keeping him awake at night um, back in a, in a U.S. conference a few weeks, a few months ago. Um, you've got, they're all different. I think the, the real threat comes from Russia and China, to be clear. So Russia and China are tier one, US is tier one. Um, you've got other places like um, UK, Israel to an extent, that are tier one as well. What you've got in um, North Korea and Iran are um, new additions to the team, if you like. They are a, a level down, clearly dangerous, less sophisticated. They, they just simply do not have the, the same scope of operations that, that we see in Russia and China. Russia and China were very different. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, China. I mean, China is very much. You know, you, you've seen allegations of IP theft against the US and, and its allies. Um, you've also seen um, uh, kind of the, the, the theft of military technology and, and, and military know-how. But China is, is, you know, these days best known for using offensive cyber against you know dissenting parts of its own population. We saw the the, the big. Um, disclosure two, three months ago around the use of, um, you know, uh, malware-laced websites to attack kind of the, the, the Uyghur diaspora. And we've seen lots of stuff in Hong Kong around the protests there where 
there's been allegations to these cyber capabilities to try and tap into into what's taking place there. Um, there's clearly that in Russia, but Russia is far more systematic in terms of its use of the cyber domain to attack foreign countries with misinformation, fake news, um, you know, attacking elections, making use of social media. So if there was, I think, you know, China has a, has a huge state-backed operation. Russia is probably a more worrying threat because of its, you know, propensity and willingness to use it to undermine, you know, Western way of life, put it that way. You know, where, you know, Russia was, the allegations of Russia behind any interference in the US presidential election three years ago in Brexit election in the UK, clearly talk about Russia potential interference in the British election that's coming up at the end of this year and the US election next year. Um, and then what you're seeing there is um, the ability, so Russia is, is, is better or um, more um, sophisticated than anyone else, I believe, in terms of its use of broad scale um, internet connectivity, social media, essentially, and the data that's collated through that and turning that around into a way to attack those countries. I don't think we've seen, and we've seen lots of other countries peddling that using Facebook and Twitter and, and, and other platforms. You know, everyone, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, you know, it's coming from everywhere, but Russia has turned it into a fine art. Um, and that that's really hard to deal with. There was a report that came out uh, a couple of months ago, which talked about just the extent of the Russian cyber, offensive cyber capability, the ability to attack the elections or critical infrastructure in the US and elsewhere. And what was really interesting, and this kind of go, this kind of gives you a good in- indication of how sophisticated the threat has become, is the inference of that report was that the way Russia has set out up its architecture is that it understands that if you if you if you catch an attack using a particular type of weapon in one place, then if other threat groups are using the same core tools, then you know what you're looking for. There had been kind of these fire gaps between all of these various threat groups so that you could come at and that, or you could mount an attack from different directions. And if you stop one, you didn't have any intelligence that would enable you to stop one of the others. And that's extraordinary, extraordinarily expensive because it means that you're replicating all the various tools ground up, but unbelievably effective because it's very hard. It's like, you know, if, you're, if every single one of your soldiers is dressed in a different uniform, then how are you going to work out who's fighting for which side? And that, that was the, the, the inference. Conversely, we've seen some implications in China where they are being a bit more cost-effective, like they're, they're stealing tools and trying to do things without expending the same level of, uh, of investment when they're looking mm. at their um, offensive capabilities. What a world. What a world. Well... Uh, let me let me shift gears just a little bit to uh, thinking a bit more strategically in terms of how how can students make arguments about this resolution? Because uh, of course we're doing this as part of the public forum cycle, so students will be kind of setting up four to five minute arguments, either affirming this resolution or negating the resolution. Uh, so help me with what arguments you see in affirmation of this resolution, where really. Uh, the benefits of the U.S. use of cyber ops outweigh the harms. What what increase of benefits do you see for the U.S. kind of moving more obviously into offensive cyber operations? So, so my personal view, I think I would twist the question slightly. I think, I mean, clearly cybersecurity has been a component of warfare for, for a long time now. Um, so what we're actually talking about, what's changed is two things. Firstly, the transparency, as I've talked about before. 
But secondly, what we've seen this year, which we haven't seen before, is a level of integration between the cyber domain and the physical domain. So we saw that in two places most prominently. We saw that in Iran, where the uh, the Iranians attacked, a, you know, allegedly attacked a US drone, and the US responded with a cyber attack. And we've seen that in Israel, where um, there is Israel attacked a, um, it was a Hamas cyber um, cyber office, cyber building, using a physical strike. So that interchangeability between a cyber attack and a physical attack, you know, one responding with the other. We haven't seen that before in a, in as transparent a way. It was really interesting if I if I use the example of the US attack on Iran, and at the time it, the the view, if you look at some of the, the kind of the mainstream press on it, the view was that it was almost like a, a backtrack. Um, so you know, President Trump had the ability to respond to retaliate using you know, in essence, a, a missile strike. You know, lots of headlines, um, you know, um, explosions, deaths, you know, media reports, and the rest of it. And, in, and instead, there was the, 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 uh, the administration elected to respond with a cyber attack. And whilst they were public about what they'd done and the impact that it had, you didn't have the same kind of explosions and, uh, and, and death and destruction on, on the TV news. That was really interesting because uh, arguably it had a greater impact on the Iranians' ability to, to follow up, but it, no one died. And, um, and that, that gives you a sense of the positives in terms of the use of, of cyber as, a, um, as an proportionate response to a physical attack. You can actually be smarter rather than just blunt in terms of how, how you respond to that. Um, but I think, you know, the, clearly the, I guess, the, the, the shift that, that, that all countries are taking right now into ever greater levels of connectivity and reliance on advanced systems puts us into a place right now where we are more vulnerable to those cyber attacks. And I think the spin side of that is that what we have seen now, and I don't think anything the US or the UK or anyone else does this is going to promise, I think this is just the way it is going, is we've seen threat actors in more lockdown countries like Iran or Russia um, being able to attack kind of broad-scale commercial systems. So a, a military attack by the US, the response to that could be an attack on you know, Microsoft Outlook or an attack on Facebook, where what they can do is they can respond against us as opposed to going after the much more hardened military targets. And that's just a reality that we're going to have to live with is that we're in a, we're in a new place. And I think the, the final thing on that that, that I think people should to take account of is, is new technologies, the increasing use of AI, the increasing use of automated tools within a battlefield environment and so where some of these decisions are going to be taken. And I think you have to look at the whole thing in the round and take a view that, you know, we, the, the concept of the internet battlefield things, which is more autonomous fighters, if you like, within a battlefield environment. And we have to say, take a view about what, what, that, what conflict looks like 10 years from now and who's taking those decisions. Because, you know, the, the, the tighter integration of cybersecurity or the cyber domain and the physical domain is all part of a... Uh, a spectrum, if you like, that we're shifting along gradually, where we are seeing ever more automation and connectivity in, in conflict writ large, and ultimately we're going to see decisions taken out of people's hands and put into the hands of those very complex machines. Well, that, those are some really helpful benefits, I think, that that do come out of that. Uh, can we flip the question? Are there are there harms here? Because of course, for a debate, you have to prep both sides. So for the for the negative side, what are the harms of the U.S. kind of moving more obviously in this direction? You could you could make an argument that as the US and its allies invest more in cyber capabilities, you you raise the level playing field. You know, a, a an arms race or a you know race to the moon or whatever 
you know, it creates two sides, right? So, so everyone keeps up with that. So what we're seeing now is increasing levels of investment amongst threat actors that may be targeting you or me as opposed to some military targets. Now, I, I think it's a, it's a good argument as to whether anything the US does is going to drive those investments or they're going to happen anyway. Um, you know, I, I'd probably err on the side of thinking that, you know, cat's out of the bag. You know, we are seeing what we are seeing. Um, so um, I, I just, I think we, yeah, I think within the cybersecurity department, I think we are where we are. I, I'm not sure there's a debate that is going to take place uh, around whether this is the direction of travel. I think the debate is how much we want to spend on that. And probably the bigger debate is to the extent to which our cybersecurity domain will pull resources from the physical domain, whether it will become such a powerful attack tool that we will we will spend some money we may have spent on, you know, bomb kinetic so bombs and bullets or platforms, you know, ships and tanks and whatever we, we're going to spend on, you know, advanced cybersecurity capabilities. Um, because what it what what cyber does is it, it creates a level playing field, if you like. It is it is far easier for Iran, if you like, to catch up with um, with other countries in cyber than it would be in physical weapons, which are just expensive and you need to get them from somewhere and you need to overcome kind of, you know, export controls and the rest of it. It's much, much, much more easy to, uh, much easier to get hold of these cyber tools. And then the final point on that, which I think is really important, and I think this is a component that people will start to think more about over the next year. In uh, If you look at, say, conflicts in the Middle East where you have... You know, Russia, China, even to an extent, and obviously the US piling in, it's very obvious. Right? You know, it doesn't matter whether they're contractors or serving military personnel. If you've got people training troops on the ground, you can say, you know, it's there. If you have Russia or China um, sharing cybersecurity tools, capabilities, know how, code with other threat actors, with proxies or other nation states, it is really hard to work out that that's what's happened. So, and as I said, as I've written, I think, you know, the real danger right now in the cybersecurity domain is in the Middle East. It's in, it's, it's in and around the, the standoff with Iran, not particularly because Iran has <clears throat> such devastating capabilities in of itself, but because you've got Russia and China around the edges of that. And within the cyber domain, you have the ability for international collaboration against the US and its allies that you just would be really hard to defend against and even to detect. And that, I think, is a component that we're going to see more of moving forwards where um, you see almost like this cybersecurity benevolence where it's not just sharing satellites and, you know, missiles and planes. What you're seeing is cybersecurity know-how shared. It only happens already, but you're going to see more of that. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a really interesting threat because if, if all your proxies, if all your, you know, uh, rogue states and potentially some of your terror groups have access to some of these nation-state cyber tools that takes us into a different place. It really does. And it's, I think the, the, so far the most persuasive arguments I've seen on NEG have, they basically are the same kind of arguments people have run for years against increasing military strength and increasing the size of the military, which I, I, as I, I, I think what you've said makes sense that we're in a position where contemporary warfare involves a cyber element. And there's ways that that may be a benefit to, to, to modern war. Uh, but it's not as if we can really engage the debate about should we have warfare in this way. That decision seems to have been made for us by our opponents in the in, in the struggle. So the question becomes: To what extent uh, will we engage in that? And it does seem to me I I'd not thought about as you were describing the ways that social media gets kind of roped in to uh, as really the playing the the field of combat in some in some of this. 
I've, I've not thought about. I wonder if one of the harms there might be something about kind of increasingly moving warfare into a private space as opposed to being kind of the older medieval idea of uh, war is always done by known combatants in a on a battlefield, whereas now we have physical battlefields running through cities and civilian space, and now even in the or in parts of the internet that have uh, are at least presented as if they are public common spaces that people interact on, and and people at least generally I think assume the folks they meet in the uh, over Facebook or Twitter or something are are genuinely are sort of who they present themselves as, uh, but we're 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 in a it, it's uh, maybe maybe Aldous Huxley was right and it's just a brave new world all all around. Um, and then you know, people are more aware than they've been in the past in terms of the fact that you know you're talking to a real person on social media. And there are lots of dimensions in what you've just said. You know, if you want to compromise military personnel, you know, they're all, you know, when they get off the ship, they're all sharing photos on Instagram and putting stuff on Facebook. And, you know, you've got threat actors looking at all that stuff. Conversely, if you want, if you're a Western threat actor, you want to compromise individuals in Syria or Iran, then, you know, ironically, social media becomes a, a, a good mechanism uh, by which you can do that. You saw some of that with the Bellingcat investigation into Russia. And, you know, the, the exposure of the GRU guys, the script poisoning guys, where they were able just through social media to just work out who the GRU intel guys were, you know, just by posts and pictures and the rest of it. And in a world with, you know, face recognition and AI and the rest of it, it's, it's actually, you know, a really interesting dimension that once you compromise people and social media is a good place to compromise people once you've got them, you, you, you've got them. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. I'm keeping track of our time, and uh, I've got, I've, I'm afraid we've only got time for one more question, and I'll have to wrap us up. Um, but you, you've mentioned AI several times. I know as I was reading through your bio that uh, I think I saw the phrase edge AI technologies is one of your areas of interest. Um, I, 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 this may not be something you're interested in, but if you are, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Could, could you speculate for us where you see AI technology going in the next 10 years? Well, everywhere, I think, is the answer. Um, I mean, AI, all AI is, is giving a machine the ability to make a decision that a human could have made to, to, to digest information and make a decision based on that information, whether that is interpreting speech or, you know, traffic patterns or a pedestrian running from a car or, or a military strategy or whatever else. And what we're seeing is just so such fast advances in that that ultimately AI will, will be able to certainly outthink for pace humans. It won't be as creative, but it will be faster and uh, clearly unlimited in scope. Um, what's really interesting with AI, and this is where our area is, is, is the whole ability to push the back to the edge. So you've seen, if you go back a few years, everything's all about cloud, and then um, there became this view that actually that put too much burden on the network, so everything came about edge computing, and it clearly lives somewhere in the middle. Where AI says is you need to be able to run some of this intelligence out in the field where decisions are being taken, and you need to do that in a networked way. So you need to be able to link that to what's taking place centrally and how decisions are being formulated and taken. So some decisions make sense at the edge, some decisions make sense at the centre. Good example I often use, if you think about a battlefield, you know, narrowing haystacks down might take place with my automated, you know, drones or vehicle, um, ground vehicles out in the battlefield, but I might be bringing data back to actually find the needles by using the increase in processing I have centrally. And that's what we mean, it's just that cutting the, cutting the, uh, the processing chain up so that we can do things efficiently. I'll paint you a picture from a surveillance perspective, quite interesting. So right now, 
Um, if you think about 10, 10 years from now, you think about Minority Report, you think about the ability to infer how you behave and be able to watch you and monitor you automatically without interfering with your privacy, but just to understand when people are going to do certain things or to understand when a person has done something wrong, to enroll that person in a system and then to go look for that person. So when people talk about the fears of automated surveillance, they kind of, they've got this world in their heads. Those are the capabilities that as society, we're going to have to debate the extent to which we want to make use of in the future. Wow, that's a uh, we're, we're uh, so I teach a philosophy class to high school students, and one of the things that we've recently been talking about is the uh, importance of uh, making sure that science and ethics are done in parallel to each other, and that when science is kind of freed from ethical concerns, we really get some pretty atrocious things have happened in twentieth century history. Certainly, when you separate those. Uh, it sounds like I, I, I'll be interested to see if, uh, if our ethical reasoning about the usage of technology parallels the growth in technological capability over yeah. the years. But we'll see. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Good to speak to you. Enjoy the day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to What's the Res with our guest, Zach Doffman. Zach is the founder and CEO of Digital Barriers, and uh, you can find him uh, across various social medias. Zach, I'm sorry, I meant to ask you, uh, where can people find your work? I didn't, I didn't get your handles I, down. I can find my writing on Forbes, if they just look me up on Forbes, I'll find that. And then uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at UKZach. Wonderful. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we hope that this is a help to you as you are preparing for the November-December public forum topic. And uh, do give us some feedback and let us know how this episode helped you. Uh, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and Twitter. We're on Reddit, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle at whatstheres underscore. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. And of course, please don't forget, just in case you need more debate in your life, you can also find our premium debates. Uh, you can find those at our website, www.whatstheres.com, and you can click the banner there where you each month we release a premium debate episode. You can access those for $3 a month or $30 a year. We hope that this episode is a help to you, and we'll be back next time to continue the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions of the world of high school debate. Until then... Work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.